There's a lot that I learned playing baseball through college. One of the things that I learned is how to be an individual within the context of a team. I also learned a lot about what it means to be a team and be dependent upon some individuals. And I've learned the kind of good things about those uh, situations. And I learned some things about, you know, the bad things of that. I hated uh, being the teammate who depended upon a team, one of the team who depended upon a teammate for us to win. Down by a couple runs, two outs. Our last hope is this guy who's, you know, 5'4 and 110 pounds, and he has to hit a three-run homer to win. Sometimes you just learn like, eh, all right, let's move on. Um, other times I liked being the guy. And um, I just remember one time uh, right before our uh, playoff game in the um, Super Regionals, we're playing University of British Columbia. Coach got us all together. I'm ready for this. You don't really do pep talks in baseball. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, all right. Now go out there and stand there. So um, he, he pulled us together and he simply said this, do you guys want this? And I'm thinking, yeah. I mean, like, why else did we show up? Like, yes, we want this game. Yes, we want to win. Yes, we want to go to the College World Series. Yes, that's what we want. But I learned something for um, having coached my own son now, and I'm coaching his 12-year-old team. I'm learning more and more what my coach meant by that when I was in college. What he really meant was they have coached us and taught us what to do and how to do it well. I was surrounded by a bunch of coaches who used to play Major League Baseball, and so I'm listening to them, and they're doing the best they can to talk to me and teach me. But when they asked the question, do you want this, I realized in that moment that uh, the reason why they're asking us is that's the one thing you can't coach. You can't coach want. And so when I'm sitting here coaching my 12-year-olds and I'm looking at them and it's right before a tournament and I'm trying to pump them up and I'm looking, I'm like, you guys want this? You want to be here? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, ah. And I realized it's, it's beyond my control. I do not possess the ability to impart want. Does that make sense? And, and we as parents, we know exactly what that's like because we want our kids to want to do homework, right? But you can't make them want that's just not in the realm of what we're able to do. As a pastor, I have to be honest with you, there's times when it's so frustrating because what I want is for people to want Jesus. I can't do that. I don't have the power to impart want. The reality is I'm utterly dependent upon God to provide the want. I'm responsible to be an instrument, to be a tool, to be a vessel. I'm not responsible for the results. That's, God, that's up to God. So when we come to Acts chapter 18, which is a series we've been going through for a few months now here at Golden Hills, we'll be in Acts chapter 18 and chapter 19. If you have a Bible, whip that out. One of the things that we're going to see is this, that we are sent. We are sent out into the world to proclaim the gospel of God's grace in his kingdom. That's what we're tasked to do. But the reality is, as we go about doing that, we have to entrust the results to God. The results are up to him, but the task is up to us. And we're going to see this played out in the life of a man named Apollos, a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, through the Apostle Paul, and then through a really cool story. Um, we're going to see this, that they're tasked with proclaiming the gospel of God's grace in the kingdom, but they're entrusting the results to God. He's the great cause in all of this. So... Uh, just to give a little background, if you remember what Larry preached on last week, he talked about Paul's extensive travel. If you remember, Paul went from Athens to a place called Corinth. When he went to Corinth, he met Priscilla and Aquila there, husband and wife team. Uh, 
They were tent makers by trade. So he being a tent maker, himself, tent maker himself decided to join them in that business. And so they became tent makers, all three of them. And uh, they traveled around the city sharing the gospel. So obviously Paul brought along Priscilla and Aquila to join him in gospel ministry. And they departed eventually from Corinth to head to a place called Ephesus. And when they arrived in Ephesus, Paul did what he always does. He found a synagogue and then he went into the synagogue and began to proclaim the gospel. Meanwhile, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are doing uh, who knows what. Maybe, I don't know, going on a city tour. I don't know. But he comes out of the synagogue and he finds Priscilla and Aquila and he tells them, hey, I'm going to leave you guys here and I'm going to head back. I'm out. And so he gets on a boat and he heads over to Antioch, which is the sending church for uh, one of his mission trips. And he heads back to Jerusalem. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus while he's out going back to Jerusalem and uh, to Antioch. And so we pick up the story in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, as you guys probably have figured out, having listened to me preach for a while, I like to like read some stuff and then explain some stuff and get back into the text. Is that you follow me along with this? So when I read this, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, who in the world is Apollos? Who who is this cat? Well, we know a couple things about him. He's a Jew, which means he's Jewish by race or nationality. We know that he's a native of Alexandria in Egypt, so he uh, hails from Africa. What's really cool about this is if you remember from your world civilization class, there was a gigantic library in Alexandria, Egypt. And you remember it was so extensive with so many books that it attracted philosophers and scholars and theologians to the city. And that's where Apollos is from. Can you imagine growing up in a climate like that where you had the resources to become educated and not just like educated, but like educated where you have philosophers just walking the streets. You had scholars of all kinds just made available to you. Well, it's no wonder that Luke describes Apollos like this. He's an eloquent man. He's competent in the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, which tells us that he's intelligent. He can learn. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So you learn a lot about this guy, eloquent. It's highly gifted and talented. It's intelligent in the, in the way in which he communicates. He's able to articulate ideas with clarity. There's a lot going on with Apollos. But there's some other things we know about him is this. He's a beloved orator. An orator is somebody who's able to communicate really well, capture your attention, kindle your affections. And he's really good at that. How do we know that? Because Paul later on would write a letter to the church in Corinth describing something that's going on in the church involving Apollos. So let's read this together, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. And by the way, Crispus was the synagogue leader 
at the early uh, portion of Acts chapter 18. And Paul says he also baptized Gaius, who is, we're going to be introduced to next time in Acts chapter 19, who was the synagogue leader uh, who probably took over for Crispus. But you know, you see what's interesting here. Chloe's people give Paul a report that there's division in the church. That there are some people saying, I follow Paul. Some people saying, I follow Apollos. Some people say, I'm following Cephas or I follow Jesus, whatever. And what's really interesting about that is Paul saying, this shouldn't be me. Like, none of these guys die for you except for Jesus and Jesus alone. And you see what's happening. Division and faction in the church is happening because people are deciding that they prefer one pastor over another. This is the first indication we see in the Bible of celebrity pastors. You see, I follow Matt Chandler. I follow John Piper. I follow T.D. Jakes. You look at that kind of stuff and you go, this ought not to be. These are men. They are instruments. They are tools. They are not to be esteemed and cause division in the church. And then he picks it up in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You see what Paul's trying to get across and try to get into their heads? Are you kidding me? You can't esteem one person above another. What really counts is God. God is the agent of growth. God is the cause behind all of the results of ministry. We can't esteem one man above another and vice versa. Come on now. But if you notice what was causing the division was some people were saying, you know what? You know, Paul's smart and everything, but man, Apollos can preach. That man's got fire. We like him. We prefer him. And that is what Paul's saying. That can't happen. So we learn about Apollos that he's a gifted, very talented communicator, well-liked, beloved orator, highly intelligent. But you know, also, you know what also we learn from this? Is that our giftedness can never be an excuse from us continuing to grow. In spite of all that Apollos had and all of his abilities, in spite of all the things that he was gifted and enabled to do, we're going to see in verse 26 that Apollos still had room to grow. Look at this, verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, in verse 25, it says that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But now in verse 26, it says they had to pull this guy to the side in order to teach him more accurately. Which is a, a, a telling thing for me. That you and I, as gifted as we may be and as talented as we may be and as much charisma as we may have, those are not reasons to no longer seek continual growth in Christ. We have to understand that our giftedness does not excuse us from pursuing Christ. There's nobody, not you, not I, none of us who ever arrives. We got growth to pursue, and Apollos is one of these. But did you notice 
the process of his growth and how it all happened. He was speaking boldly in a synagogue. He's teaching. Priscilla and Aquila are standing right there next to him, and they hear something. This guy's missing something. He teaches accurately, but he needs to be more accurately. So it doesn't mean that he was wrong. It just means he was deficient in some way. So Priscilla and Aquila invite this guy over to their house. Do you notice that? If you have the NIV, that's what it says in verse 26, that they invited him to, his, to their house. They invited him to their home. In the ESV, it just simply says they took him aside. They don't publicly humiliate him. They don't stand up and go, you know what you don't know? They say, hey, our house is open tonight. You want to come over for dinner? Now, if he operates the way I operate, I live by the mantra, if it's free, it's for me. So if I have somebody invite me over for dinner and it's a free meal, guess what? I'll be there. So I don't know if that's why he came or what. But if you notice, they, they go to the house of Priscilla and Aquila, this godly couple. And you notice that Priscilla and Aquila are not described as scholars. They're not experts like professors, nor are they pastors. They're just people in the church who opened their home and invited this man who's eloquent and intelligent to sit together over the word of God and to spend some time studying, talking about it, praying over it, and learning about it. You know what that sounds like to me? Small groups. Think about joining one. See what I did there? <laughs> but, but, but the hard thing is this. We have to be real careful as the church that what we're doing is we're not just opening the Bible and said, let's read this paragraph. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? How do you feel? What do you think? Because in pooling our ignorance, we may not get anywhere. But instead, somebody needs to actually do the research and figure out what this word says and then come back to the group and say, okay, let's read this together. Here's what's happening here. Let's learn together. Let's teach one another. And that's what's happening with Priscilla and Aquila and with Apollos that they were teaching one another, encouraging one another. And this was really, really cool. Now, did you notice how they went about doing it? Simply inviting this man into their home. And it makes me think to myself, how might God want to use my home? How might God want me to open up my house, bringing people in, to pray, to teach, and do all that. My wife Heather and I, when we first got here to Golden Hills almost 10 years ago, we decided the best way to, to really mentor, disciple people is to open up our houses on Thursday night. So we opened up our house. We told all the college students, you're welcome to come over. You know what irritated me? They would knock on the door. I'm in my comfy chair, my sweatpants. You want me to get up? <laughs> so we had a policy. If you're going to come over to the ward house, you better just come in. I'm not trying to get up. It's been a long week. So they would just come on in, and we'd have food in the fridge, and we'd have stuff on the counter. We'd have board games laid out. We'd be watching TV or whatever, and we're like, hey, man, this house is open for you. You want to talk about stuff? Let's talk. You want to pray? Let's do that. You want to play games? Let's do that. You want to eat? Go ahead. And we just opened our house up, man, and God blessed that ministry. And I'm just wondering, is that something God wants us to keep doing? Because you see it here. And notice from what Paul writes in Colossians. I think this is something that has a heartbeat of Paul. He says this in Colossians chapter 3. 
He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And the word you there is plural, you all. Let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you notice that Paul says we are to teach and admonish one another? It isn't if you are qualified or if you have a special degree or if, or if, or if. What he says is you need to let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts richly, all of you, and teach one another and admonish one another. And I think that's the best way that God grows the church is he grows the church through each other. And you know that to be true because you've seen throughout the New Testament that there are so many commands about one another. Love one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Correct one another. Rebuke one another. Serve one another. Confess your sins to one another. Forgive one another. Be in harmony with one another. And you start getting the idea that maybe God is concerned about how we live together as the church. This is a foreign concept in the world today, I really think. Because in our culture today, we really don't want to be taught by anybody unless they're older than us, more advanced than us, and have more authority than us. I've had men in their 50s come up to me and they say, man, Phil, I would love for you to disciple me, except you're in your 30s and I'm in my 50s. And I'm like, and? So you mean to tell me that just because you're 50, I have nothing to offer because I'm 30? Maybe that's a lesson right there. You see, the church is countercultural because the culture tells us don't listen to anybody unless they got credentials. And the church is a little bit different than that. It talks about how we, one another, are to build one another up. And remember, this whole, this whole thing takes place in the city of Ephesus, in the city of Ephesus. And so I asked myself the question, what might Paul have to say uh, about this notion of the church building itself up. And luckily for you all, Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about it. It's the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And here's his instructions about the church and how it's to grow. It says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do you see the relationship of verses 11 and verse 12? God has given the church, people like myself, called pastors to do what? Verse 12 says, to equip the saints. Now, the saints is the church. My job is to equip the church to do what? To prepare you for the work of the ministry. So the question is, who does the work of the ministry? The church does. And yet oftentimes, at least this is how it was for me until I became a pastor and realized this is my job description. It was like, uh-oh. The whole time I thought, here's what it is. The pastor is supposed to stand there and equip me and then go and do the work of the ministry for me. And I realized that isn't the way Paul describes it. Actually, if I just kind of sit back and expect the pastors to equip me and then do all the work of the ministry, I'm being disobedient. I can't do that anymore. But do you notice once we go from that perspective, verse 13 it, the, the whole work of the ministry is to build up the body of Christ. We're to build each other up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that 
we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. There's teaching by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it's, it builds itself up in love. Do you see that last phrase? The church builds itself up in love. So when we see Priscilla and Aquila saying, hey, Apollos, time out. You're accurate. You're, you're on point, man. You don't get anything wrong. But the thing is, would you come over to our house? Because we got some more to add. We got some more things we want to share with you. That isn't a pride thing. And if Apollos was prideful, he'd say, who do you think you are? I'm from Alexandria. I got scholars as neighbors. You're going to teach me something? You're a tent maker. Do you, do you feel that? But, but that's not there, right? Why? Because we all have access to the Father through the Spirit. We can teach one another. So the prophets, the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, equip the saints. Saints do the work of the ministry. And what is my job and your job collectively? We all grow. We all grow. We are the instruments. God is the cause. As we exercise these uh, obedience of these commands, we have to realize we're not the one causing all of this growth. God is the one causing the growth. We are just the instruments through which God uses to produce the growth. And we see this in verse 27. So when Apollos finished dinner, maybe they had spaghetti. I don't know. It's my favorite. When he wished to cross to Achaia, which is Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So he gets a letter of recommendation. So he arrives in Corinth and he greatly helped those who through, who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos shows up in Corinth and he gets to work. He begins to powerfully refute and powerfully demonstrate how Jesus is the Messiah the anointed one, the promised one, and how Jesus lived a sinless life, how he died for the consequences of sin, how he was risen from the dead, ushering in the new creation. And you notice he was walking alongside these disciples, these Christians, helping them who through grace had believed. Whose grace? God's grace. God's grace is what saves but oftentimes God uses us as the instrument or mechanism through which he saves people by the preaching of the gospel. And we have to make sure we understand that truth. So there he was, Apollos in Corinth doing work, preaching, and God was saving people. Apollos the instrument, God the cause. Chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. This is an interesting exchange of questions and answers. Paul leaves Antioch and Jerusalem. He's heading back around the inland country, going back through the churches he helped to plant, strengthening the disciples. He arrives in Ephesus. He sees a group of 12 men gathered together. 
and he supposes that they are disciples of Jesus. And I'm going to suggest that they're not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John. And here's why. He wants to know whether or not they're disciples of John or disciples of Jesus. So he asked this question in verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Do you see how he phrases that question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? And then the next word is when you believed. Not after, not before. When. This is important because in Paul's mind, he connects the reception of the Holy Spirit with belief in Jesus. And so when somebody finally believes in Jesus, what in the world does that mean? It means simply this. Recognition of our own brokenness and the recognition that we are in need of repair and healing. And then to hear the good news that God sent Jesus God come in the flesh to live the unbroken, perfect life for us, but to take upon himself through his death on the cross the penalty of sin, that he was buried and that he rose from the third day. That resurrection is the proof that God, in Jesus Christ, his work was enough. And so we come to trust that Jesus is enough. And when we trust that Jesus is enough, his work is finished and final and full. The Holy Spirit is granted to us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the work of Christ to us. And you cannot have the application of the work of Christ applied to you until you hear what the work of Christ is. So trusting Christ's finished work and having Christ's finished work applied to you through the Holy Spirit are one and the same. And so Paul asked the question, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or in other words, did you have the effects of the finished work of Jesus applied to you? And they say, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? So what is his conclusion? Are these disciples of Jesus or not? Nope, they're not. They can't be. They don't even know who he is. So then he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. What in the world is that? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. What it was was a symbolic gesture where somebody is asked the question, are you a sinner? And they go, yep. Okay, you need to stop. And they're like, yeah, I know. All right, come down into the water, and we're going to publicly have you be uh, washed with water as a symbolic gesture that you're ready to stop sinning. Okay. We get that from Luke chapter 3, where John was in all the regions around the Jordan. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's in accordance with what Isaiah was writing, that John's baptism was a preparation for the way of the Lord, that he was there to make the paths straight. And he picks this up in verse 16 of Luke chapter 3. He says, everyone's asking the question, John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? And he goes, no, 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 I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what John's saying is, look, man, my baptism of repentance is just an anticipation and a preparation for the fullness of salvation and the forgiveness of sins that will come with Jesus. 
And the people are going, okay, well, where is this Savior? The very next day, we pick it up in John chapter 1. Jesus is coming over the hill, walking towards John as he's down in the Jordan. He looks over at Jesus and he goes, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. And then in verse 30, he says, this is, uh, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So John's baptism was a baptism of preparation and anticipation for Jesus. John's baptism was just a baptism of symbolism and hope. Jesus, when he came and baptized with the Spirit, it was no longer preparation, it was fulfillment. It's no longer, I hope one day to have my sins forgiven. It is, you now have your sins forgiven through the application, the finished work of Jesus through the Spirit. And then Paul goes on to explain, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. And you notice that last little phrase, he had to qualify who he's talking about. He said, you need to believe in the one who comes after John. His name is Jesus. Therefore, we can say the disciples who Jesus met, or who uh, Paul met in Ephesus, they weren't, they weren't Jesus' disciples yet. They were John's disciples. And so he shared with them who Jesus was. Verse 5, and on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. It is amazing what's happening right here. You know, in, in some traditions of Christianity, we take this text and we say, this is how Christianity normally works. You see, you believe, and then at some point somebody else comes over next to you and they lay hands on you, and then all of a sudden they give you the Holy Spirit, and then you start speaking in tongues. That's the evidence of whether or not you're truly saved. And I would say, first of all, we understand that the disciples here in, that are referred to here are John's disciples. They didn't truly believe. The other thing is this, is we have to make sure that we're reading the book of Acts a little more closely than that. Do you know that there's only three times in the book of Acts where people are described as speaking in tongues? Chapter 2, chapter 10, chapter 19. You want to take a, uh, a guess on, on where those events took place? Chapter 2, it's in Jerusalem. Chapter 10, it's in Judea and Samaria. Chapter 19... It's in Ephesus, which is the main city to the rest of the world. Are you connecting the dots with me? Remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Stay here and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For what purpose? Then you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, ends of the earth. And do you notice that what's happening is what, what Luke is trying to do is get our attention. That the Holy Spirit came in Jerusalem and people began to speak in tongues to signify to the whole watching gathering. God's redemption plan has begun. But he made a promise that it won't just be in Jerusalem. It's going to go and it's going to advance. And so next scene we have is in Acts chapter 10 in Judea and Samaria. People receive the Holy Spirit. Next thing they know, they're speaking in tongues. Why? Because God is now telling you phase two has begun. 
And then we go to Ephesus, the, the major city where the beginning of inroads to the rest of the world happens, laying on hands, receiving of Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. Why? Because God wants to get our attention that his plan of redemption, which is going to start in Jerusalem but reach to the ends of the earth, it has begun. But not only that, if you remember from Genesis chapter 11, you remember the Tower of Babel? You remember how the people gathered together? They all had the same language and they were built up with pride. And they're like, let's build us a city. Not only a city, but let's build a tower and let's prove that we are gods. And God's looking down going, mm, no. So he comes down and he confuses their language and disperses them all over the face of the earth. But do you recognize that what God is doing in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and through you and I as witnesses who are multiplying the gospel and being sent out, do you know what God is doing? God is now reversing that. Where it was pride and the consequence was dispersion and confusion, God is now sending us out to bring back and to bring clarity and oneness in the church. Do you see what's happening? God is reversing the curse. God is redeeming. God is restoring. God is reconciling. No wonder why the church is oftentimes referred to as the kingdom of God, which is comprised of people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, and from every people group. Because God desires to have a people for his own possessions who are a sampling and a representation of all that he has created from all kinds of different cultures. And so what we see in this Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria in the ends of the earth and people speaking in tongues is not a normal Christian activity. What it is is uh, uh, trying to instruct us that God is on the move and through the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel is effectual and you and I are filled with the Spirit and the, the, uh, the work of Christ has been applied to us. So we must go in the power of the Spirit and go make disciples, not trusting ourselves to produce the results, but God will do it. Be faithful as an instrument. God is on the move. Let's go. That's what he's trying to get across. And that, brothers and sisters, is awesome. It goes on. And it says that Paul then entered the synagogue for three months and he was speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading. And then notice this, he was reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. That's why that, that phrase is used here. It's, it's an example to us. This is about the whole book of Acts is about how the Holy Spirit is bringing about the kingdom of God. It's amazing. But people didn't like that. He spent three months laying out his arguments, laying out his rationale, and the people were like, mm, yeah, anyways, verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So basically, Paul takes his ball and goes home. But that's the formula Paul uses. Remember Romans 1.16? What is the power of God for salvation? It's the gospel. And it saves everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So Paul goes to the Jews first in the synagogue and shares with them the gospel. They resist it. And so he says, all right, I'm going to the Gentiles then. So he rents a public hall and he spends, according to verse 10, two years there arguing, persuading, and presenting the truth of the gospel to any who would hear. 
And it says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean every single resident without exception. That would be crazy. What it means is every single resident without distinction. That's why he uses that little clause at the end. He says, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, the gospel is for everyone. Not just Jews, but for everyone. Yes, the promises were made to the Jewish people. And yes, they've been fulfilled by a Jewish man named Jesus. But the effects of his work can be applied to everyone and anyone. Now, that's good. Notice this in verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Notice it doesn't say... Paul was doing extraordinary miracles. But Luke reminds us that behind all of this amazing activity and the effects of the gospel, God is behind it all. He is the one causing it. He is the one producing the effects. God was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to be sick. And their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. That's amazing. And then we get to the next section, which is hilarious. It's one of my favorite sections. Look at what happens here, verse 13. And what we're reminded is this. <laughs> no, I'll get to it in a second. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, itinerant means that's how they make their living. They travel around making money by performing exorcisms. And they're Jewish by nationality and by religion. They undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit, and here's the good part, answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who in the world are you? Now, this is a great example of people recognizing the power and authority and the work of Jesus and his name, but refusing to bend the knee to his lordship and surrender their lives to him. In other words, they're saying Jesus is important. I just don't care that he's important for me. And so what they're doing is they're trying to make money off of Jesus's name. So they're not coming in the powerful name and the beautiful name and the wonderful name of Jesus. They're coming in the powerful name, the wonderful name, and the beautiful name of money. Do you see what's happening? And brothers and sisters, we got to be careful if we ever get in that kind of situation where we recognize Jesus' authority and power, but we refuse to yield and surrender to it. We might end up like this, verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. you imagine seeing that? Not only that, but then there's the public humiliation of verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus without distinction, <laughs> both Jews and Greeks. you imagine that? Hi, I'm Dan. Hey, isn't your dad Sceva? <laughs> yeah, I heard about you. Boy, you got whooped. Naked and wounded. But you know what else this reminds us of? 
that we ought to be very leery of ever using the powerful, wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus for our own get-rich-quick scheme or as if Jesus is some kind of cosmic ATM or he's a cosmic slot machine that you just pull the little lever, invoke the name of Jesus, bing, 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 I get rich. Now you understand why I'm hot and bothered about the prosperity gospel. Because at some point, these knuckleheads and false teachers are going to end up naked and wounded. Maybe not literally, but spiritually. Did I not prophesy in your name? And Jesus said, yeah, but I never knew you. Don't you see that? Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. Who do you think you are? Invoking my name for your own interests? Not having it. No wonder why the next effect is this, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. The name of the Lord Jesus was praised. You notice you don't ever hear about the sons of Sceva no more. They probably quit that business. Either that or they surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Remember one day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord. And it results in radical obedience. Look at this in verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers. So they heard for two and a half years Paul preaching the gospel. And they probably were witnesses of this episode. They now believed. They came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Just so you know, a piece of silver, silver is worth one day's wages. 50,000 days wages. They heaped into a pile and set that ablaze. That's radical obedience. That's obedience where you look at the name of Jesus and you go, I'll follow you to the ends of the earth and I'll even risk financial ruin to do so. Brothers and sisters, think about this. When we think about the overwhelming and relentless love of God that he has granted us Jesus Christ to provide all that we need to be saved, do we respond with radical obedience? When I used to work with young adults and college students, they would come to me. They'd be like, Pastor Phil, man, I need help. I'm struggling with sin. I'm like, what's your sin? Inevitably, it's always one of two things, sexual sin or pornography, which is basically the same. How are you looking at pornography? They would say, on my phone or on my computer or something like that. I would say this, get rid of it. Well, I, I, I mean, I can't do that. No, no, you can't or you won't. Can't means inability. Won't means lack of desire. Remember at the beginning when I said I wish I could give people want? I can't. I want you to live in freedom from pornography. I want you to live in freedom from hidden sin. I want you to live in the freedom of holiness. But you got to get rid of that phone. I can't do it. How will my friends get a hold of me? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> For human history, man, people found other ways. But do you notice radical obedience is not really in people's forefronts of their minds. It's obedience 
by ease. Whatever's easiest, that's what I'll do. But this was radical obedience. Now let me ask you this question. Were they radically obedient in order to earn God's affections for them? How that looks today is this, is you feel spiritually dry. You ever been there before? I know I have. I have. I felt dry. God, where are you? And in those moments, I, I know what we end up doing. We're like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I feel dry. I feel distant from God. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to do everything I know how to do as a Christian. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sign up for every small group available. I'm going to sign up for every ministry in the church that needs help. I'm going to sign up for everything. And through all of this obedience, I'm going to somehow get God's affections. I'll feel him again. Guess what? It ain't going to happen. We have to realize that it is the contemplation of the beauty and the wonder of the gospel that compels us to radical obedience. It is not radical obedience that earns for us the affections of God. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I, I was in a house that, that was well-intentioned, that, that loved me. And I was always asked, you better do good in school, you better do good in sports. Not because you better or else, but just you better because you should just try hard. And so I would play baseball, I would do really well, and I would come home, my dad would be helping coach, and he's like, hey, you went three, four, a couple doubles, single, good job, you stole some bases. What happened on that fourth at bat? And in my mind, what he was saying was, you got to do better, dude. Come on, three out of four? What my dad was really saying was, you did great three out of four times. That fourth time, let's think about it and let's see if we can figure out how to get better. Do you see the nobility in my dad's heart? He had good intentions. I don't fault my dad at all. But I told my dad as an adult, I was like, you know when you used to say that kind of stuff, you know what it did to me? It made me feel like the only way to earn your love is to be perfect. And not only that, but in school, I felt the same exact way. And I don't know about you, but I'm an insecure sinner. And deep down, my whole entire life, all I want to be is loved. To be honest with you, that's where I'm at. That's, that's where I'm at. I just want to be loved. And I thought from my parents that the only way I'm ever going to feel loved from them if I, is if I obey and if I'm perfect and if I do everything they tell me to do. And I've taken that into my Christian life. Well, I have it in my mind that the only way that God could truly love me is if I perform well enough for him. You better be perfect, Phil, or else God's going to not love you anymore. And that's why I'm fiercely loyal to the gospel. Because you know what the idea of, hey, you better be, you better be obedient in order to win God's love. You better be obedient in order to feel God's love. You know what that's called? That's called good advice. But the gospel is good news. It's not what I need to do to earn God's favor for me. It's what God has done in Christ Jesus to secure and purchase God's affections for me. Jesus Christ, you have to hear, Jesus Christ did everything that was rec required and everything that was necessary to secure for all time God's affections for me. So whatever is true that the Father says about Jesus is true of me because I'm in Jesus. So when Jesus was baptized and you heard the voice from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, those words are meant for me because I'm in Jesus. So you need to hear this, Christians, wherever you're at. If you are in Christ, you have to know this. Those words, 
You are my son. You are my daughter. And in you, I am well pleased. Now that's important. It's important to know. And it's not because we're perfect. It's because Jesus was perfect for us. That's why the gospel is news. It's not what you must do. It's what Jesus has already done. And for me who is insecure and I just want to be loved and I want to know I'm loved, that's why the gospel resonates with me. This is good news. Jesus has done all that is necessary. God loves you, Phil. God loves you. No wonder why Romans 8 says what it does. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. That is if you're in Jesus. If you trust that he is enough. Charles Spurgeon once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Either we go with the good news or we go with good advice. One leads to eternal bliss and the other one to eternal destruction. Because you will never be good enough to win God's affections. But Jesus has done it all. It is finished, he said. And we have to trust him. The conclusion, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Brothers and sisters, if we are sent out and proclaim the pure gospel of God's kingdom and God's grace, entrust ourselves to God to produce the results, God's word will prevail. So, Father, help us, I pray, as a church, you have to do this in us. These people... In Acts 19, they they divulged their practices. They confessed their sins. They lived in radical obedience, not in order to earn your affections, but because they already had them. And God, would you help us as a church to contemplate deeply the gospel, the good news that you have secured for us for all time, your love and your forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus and his victorious resurrection from the dead. And that is why I'm a new creation. So God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for entrusting it to people like us who are now sent to go into the world to bring healing to those who are broken and to help those who are hurting, to bring them into a knowledge of you. So God, would you go before us? Would you be in and amongst us? And would you grant us with all that is required to be all that you want us to be. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.